fine. Okay, perfectly fine. Fine. Okay, fine. 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 You're listening to Everything is Fine in Southwest Washington, a political podcast where we recognize that everything is not at all fine and discuss what we can do about it. I'm Carissa. And I'm Sydney. Hello, hello, everyone. We have a wonderful episode for you today. We are going to interview Andre Stackhouse. But before that, I want to tell you guys an interesting story about how I learned of Annette Cleveland, who is state senator for the 49th Legislative District. So she represents us up in Olympia. So some of you guys might not know, I am a restaurant server. I work at a local waterfront restaurant. Um, And so one day I was just doing my thing, serving some tables, and I came across this table uh, of four people and they were all wearing these red woven hats, very iconic. Um, And I was thinking, I was like, man, I swear I've seen those before. Where have I seen those? And then it clicked and I realized those were Red Beret hats. And the Red Berets are a nationwide group of universal healthcare advocates. So they fight for, they fight on all fronts essentially all over the nation and they are a network. So um, those hats symbolize the, the interwoven network of, of people pushing for and advocating for healthcare justice everywhere. So I recognized some of those faces um, because I had seen them on some independent left media. So there was Laura Fielding, Georgia Davenport, um, this lady Fran, I actually don't know her last name, um, and Scott Desnoyers, and um, he's actually from New York. Uh, and Scott Desnoyers is pretty uh, well known in the universal healthcare circles uh, because he has a very tragic story about his son Danny who is essentially sacrificed to his health insurance company for missing a $20 premium um, and died as a result of not getting his medication and it's super horrible I'm not going to go into it here but it's just a horrendous abhorrent tragedy um, which ignited the fire in Scott to make sure that this never happened to anybody again. So he was there. Um, Also a side note, he was used in Kamala Harris's uh, uh, presidential primary campaign. She used his story in one of her campaign ads. And then as we all know, um, you know, this was while, while she was as she was positioning herself as like a Bernie light candidate. So she came out, she signed on to the Medicare for all legislation with Bernie Sanders as a Senator. And, um, she came out at first saying she was for Medicare for all. She quickly flip flopped on that, told all kinds of bullshit excuses about, um, why she was no longer for it. And so, you know, to add insult to injury, he, he was, um, his, his son's story was like used to bolster the campaign of an entire, uh, like a total fraud, um, shill. So anyways, <laughs> beside the point, I suppose. Um, so anyhow, yeah, Scott Desnoyers was there and, um, anyways, I was like, holy crap, what are you guys doing here in Vancouver? Because yeah, I knew that, um, some of them were from Washington and work with whole Washington. Um, 
but Scott was from New York, so I was, you know, and I, I'm kind of a, I was a fangirl of them, you know, or I am a fangirl of them, so <laughs> I was just, I was like, wow, what a wonderful co coincidence, you're my table, and here you are, and what are you doing here? And they said that they were in Vancouver putting up wanted signs for Annette Cleveland. Now, as I said, Annette Cleveland is our state senator. I had never heard this lady's name before. Um, and I was like, okay, well, why? <laughs> what they told me is that they were putting up wanted signs for Annette Cleveland, who is head of the healthcare committee in the state Senate and is single-handedly blocking a hearing on universal healthcare. Now, why? Why? Why would she be standing in the way of such great policy? Well, we'll tell you why. She's corrupt. She's very corrupt. Just reading from her political contributions, it's it's a real beauty, you guys. We've got uh, we've got Pfizer. We got Wells Fargo. We got Eli Lilly. What else do we have here? Oh, Johnson and Johnson. Um, yeah, so all kinds of corporate interests, pharmaceutical interests. Um, you know insurance interests so she um because she is beholden to her donors more so than her, her the people that she claims to represent she is not going to be for universal health care unless we put out a big grassroots effort that is going to force her hand by the way she's not a republican she's a democrat democrats can be bad too guys the Red Berets, on top of the signs, putting up the signs, they were also there shooting a documentary um, called Healing Us, and we will leave the trailer in the show notes. It looks really good. It's just essentially a documentary indicting the U.S. healthcare system and all of the death and destruction and um, economic destruction that it leaves behind for people. And anyways, just a side story that doesn't have to quite do with the point of all of this, but it was it was just a really weird coincidence. So that night, I talked to the Red Berets. I'm like, you know, I'm just a complete weirdo, and uh, I take pictures with them. I'm like, oh, all right, guys, see you later. And uh, they're like, okay, thanks for the food. And then <laughs> I go home and I tell my husband about it, and I'm like, oh, man, I want to get involved. Um, you know, what can I do? So he, he had heard the story and I told him all about Nut Cleveland. And then the next morning he was working at the same restaurant and Annette Cleveland came in like super fucking crazy. Right. And, um, uh, the reason I'm telling you this part of the story is because it was kind of odd the way that, <laughs> the way that she arrived. So she was with a group. Um, and a gentleman decided to speak for her and said, the senator would like a seat on the waterfront as if she has this level of prestige that all of us should just be like scrambling to get her the best seat in the house. So anyways, that was just an interesting um, side detail there. And yeah, I, my initial... I mean, I just thought it was such a crazy coincidence and I was like, oh my gosh, this must mean something. I we, I gotta get people together. We gotta confront her and everything. And um, it turns out she's been confronted many times. Um, I couldn't get a group of people to do it. And um, sadly, I was too much 
of a little bitch to do it myself so um i let that opportunity slide but guess what she's not gonna listen to little old me what she will listen to is a grassroots coalition of vancouverites the very people that she has to pretend and claim that she represents if we get together and we show her that this is what we want this is what she needs to do with enough with enough effort with enough support uh and pressure we could we could force her hand certainly and so that's um that's where we get into our action items for this week which um, will be at the end of the episode and given annette cleveland's position on the healthcare committee uh Vancouver has a unique opportunity to like be leaders in the state on this issue and everyone hearing this for the first time should be should be absolutely like righteously outraged uh, that this is what still goes on with our politicians and um, we need to fight back we need to do something about it Annette Cleveland needs to be called out um she needs to be recognized as the enemy that she is, as the Nancy Pelosi standing in the way of progressive legislation on the federal level. She is like a little mini version of that. She is standing in the way of the things that we need uh, to catch up to modern society, right? To uh, to get the 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 basic level of care that other wealthy developed comparable nations have so um remember she's the villain she's not on your side (laughs) call her out we we have we have ways that we can pressure her there's also the ballot initiative that is a way to circumvent her as well so that's like great news but um just thought i should tell you guys that story about how i learned of who annette cleveland was Um, so that you can know a little bit about her because she's up there in Olympia claiming to represent you. Um, And unfortunately, with our broken political system, we as people have to try a lot harder to get our elected officials to actually represent us. And without further ado, here is Sydney and I's interview with Andre Stackhouse, campaign director of Whole Washington. All right, welcome to the show, Andre Stackhouse. He's the campaign director for Whole Washington, which is a grassroots coalition of healthcare professionals and volunteers from all over Washington state. Whole Washington takes the approach of fighting on all fronts. So from within the state legislature to the ballot initiative process and Medicare for all on the federal level. Welcome, Andre. Thank you so much for having me. Is there any like personal history you care to share about like why you got involved in being a universal healthcare advocate? Um, you know, for me, it's, uh, it was like very much a progression. Like I started with Bernie, um, and like Medicare for all, you know, I just heard him go over how that works so many times and how superior it is to like private health insurance. Um, and then after that, I kind of was like, okay, I wanted to keep working on what I thought of as like the political revolution. Um, and so I thought, Okay, I'll work on an issue instead of a candidate, and I'll work, um, you know, locally instead of federally. So I thought Medicare for all statewide, and then I found Whole Washington, and they were like 
trying to do this by putting it on the ballot and doing it through a ballot measure. And so I was like, okay, perfect. That's exactly the strategy that makes the most sense to me. Um, and so uh, I just started as a volunteer. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I guess it's just sort of when you work on something, um, like the more I learned about it, just kind of the more radicalizing it became. Um, and at the same time, I had this whole like tech career uh, you know, that had brought me to Microsoft, like it does for so many people around here. So I'd been putting in these years at Microsoft and, um, right around the start of COVID, I just kind of hit this point where I really felt like I'd been at Microsoft for like three years and I hadn't once been asked to do like a single goddamn thing that mattered at all. Um, and meanwhile, you know, I had this other thing that was like calling to me very strongly where, all of my contributions felt like they were like deeply important. Um, and so, you know, I just kind of wanted to leave Microsoft um, and I was getting more involved with things like uh, my activism. And then right around then the, uh, the previous campaign director uh, announced that he'd be stepping down. And so there was kind of just this like moment where there's like a lack of clarity and a lack of leadership at whole Washington. And I, I kind of just saw that moment as like, you know, I'm not like necessarily here to be the campaign manager of this organization, but I, you know, I feel that we cannot afford to, you know, be lost and confused while we, you know, hope a new campaign director shows up. So I'll just carry it forward, um, you know, for now, uh, as long as I'm the best person to do it. And so um, I, I led the campaign. It's been basically about a year since I was made campaign director. So I came in pretty, pretty late in the game last year. Um, and there was a very, very short timeline to, okay, if we're running this, we have just a couple of months to finalize the, uh, the language to raise the money we need to, to even just print them, um, and get our asses out there. And I, um, so, you know, I kind of just, uh, tried to create a really, big picture plan for everyone to just like kind of get behind together. Um, and, uh, and you know, that got us, got us through this year's campaign. So it's, uh, it's a crazy place to find yourself. Um, but it's also been some of the most, I don't know, rewarding, important work of my life. So. Sounds like a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how would you characterize our health health insurance system as it is now? And what issues are there that you think universal health care would alleviate or eliminate? I know that's like a very broad question, but maybe a good place. Yeah. to Yeah. Well, I think the most concise way I've heard it put, it's a quote by Martin Luther King, which is um, of all the forms of inequality, inequality in health is the most shocking and inhumane because it often results in uh, physical death, right? Um, and so uh, that's a quote that has been, I think, kind of uh, the North Star of the healthcare justice movement, which is to say that our healthcare system is shocking and inhumane. It creates um, uh, very, very um, consequential inequalities um, based on who you are in the system, uh, that it will be, you'll be treated very differently. Um, and, uh, and so I always use that quote to remind myself that we're not just talking about making healthcare less expensive or making it 
faster and more convenient or anything like that. We're talking about creating a more just healthcare system and consequently a more just society. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of mixing together a lot of different quotes and philosophies and stuff, but um, I'm not sure if he was the first person or, you know, the, the person who's most attributed to this idea. But, um, you know, I think Bernie Sanders had a very good way of articulating that you can kind of judge the values of a society by its healthcare system because mm -hmm. it's such a basic human need, right? And so how do you treat people when they're sick, when they're dying, when they uh, are 100% reliant on the community that they exist in because they can no longer take care of themselves? And the way that that system treats people in that moment says everything that you need to know about what that system values. And in our case, uh, the system looks at that person and goes, what kind of uh, profits can I extract out of them? And if part of that process includes me providing a bit of health care, then we'll do that. But we won't do that um, if we don't see the profits at the end of that um, transaction. And I think that that is an incredibly cruel way to treat um, human well-being. So universal health care is you're basically taking the profit out of the health insurance aspect of healthcare, correct? Just for those who, who aren't familiar. Yeah. You know, there are different kinds of universal healthcare systems. Um, most of them are largely public fund, like publicly funded. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're a mix of public funding and public healthcare delivery, which would be like doctors, hospitals. Um, and there's different amounts of private, um, uh, you know, the private sector being involved, depending on which healthcare system you're talking about. And there are very few universal healthcare systems that have maintained a, you know, like a majority private system, right? So an example of that might be uh, Switzerland, I think is largely private health insurance. It's sort of like uh, similar to Obamacare, where uh, you're forced to have private health insurance, um, and then that can kind of lower the cost of insurance for everybody if everybody has it. But, um, but most universal healthcare systems are publicly funded and nonprofit for the vast majority of healthcare. And, um, and what we find, you know, generally speaking is that that lowers the cost and also creates more equal and fair outcomes. So when you're describing whole Washington, you're describing a single payer system and not a Correct. state run. So states will not own hospitals, will not employ physicians. They will just pay the bills. Well, I wouldn't quite go that far, right? So what whole Washington okay. is, is a single payer healthcare system, which the the primary feature of that is that the, the government is the quote unquote single payer of healthcare costs, right? And so we often you know, I think the more intuitive way to think of it is public health insurance. So instead of paying a private healthcare premium for a private health insurance plan that may or may not cover everything you need and might have a really high deductible, um, instead, we fund it through our tax code and we make it universal. So it covers everyone. It covers all of the healthcare needs. The doctor and the hospital bill this public health insurance plan uh, for their payment. And so the, the healthcare delivery itself could be public or it could be private. And for most people, it would probably remain private, you know, private 
practice um, a privately employed doctor. But um, for instance, I receive most of my care through the UW medical system, which is a public hospital system. So in Washington state, we do have a, um, we do have a public hospital system in place already. Uh, it's just that the financing is mostly private, right? So we think that the combination of uh, public financing of healthcare plus you know, the public hospital systems that we already have that in many cases are working very well and serving communities that can't get their healthcare anywhere else, uh, plus all of the fantastic private practices that are out there as well would be participating in the same system. So, you know, we really want to remove the profiteering um, from uh, healthcare, the price gouging, the inefficiency, but that doesn't mean that we need to uh, completely eliminate all private practices, you know, all privately practicing doctors. Uh, we definitely think that there is room for different delivery models within a public single payer universal healthcare system. So with that, who is covered? Yeah. So what we like to say, right, to make it simple is that it covers everyone, it covers everything. Uh, but when we say everyone, um, you know, since we're talking about a statewide plan, uh, we base it on residency. So if you are a resident of Washington state, you're covered. Um, and uh, we use the state definition of residency, which basically is 30 days. Um, so if you're a resident of Washington state for 30 days, um, then you are eligible for coverage. There are some non-residents who are also covered. So for instance, you, maybe you live in, um, you know, just south of the Columbia and you work in Washington. Um, so some non-residents uh, can be covered as well. Um, but uh, for the most part, it's intended to be, you know, for people who either live or work in Washington state um, in a long-term way. So given that we are, we're in Vancouver in Southwest Washington, um, Many of my colleagues, uh, I teach at a community college here, live in Portland and work here, but we depend on the college for our health insurance, those of us who are lucky enough to have it. Uh, so those people would theoretically be eligible as well if they're employed yeah, I believe here? So. Or, okay. If you're employed in Washington. And what is covered? Is it everything? Are there any exceptions? Anything your doctor prescribes? Any we get a Bernie Sanders? Your eyes, what is it? What was it? Yeah. <laughs> Here's the, yeah. Um, Here yeah, the, the old joke is, uh, is they don't think it counts if it's like uh, above the neck. So it's yeah. like, yeah, I have health insurance, <laughs> but it doesn't cover mental health. It doesn't cover my vision, my hearing. Yeah. Um, your teeth, your teeth. It was dentures. Or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, uh, we really want all, all medical needs to be covered, right? And, um, and so dental, vision, hearing, uh, these days, you know, reproductive health is one that we always emphasize since the repeal of Roe versus Wade. So, you know, while some of these, you know, people all over the country are losing their right to reproductive care, we're saying, can we actually expand that? Can we, can we remove the financial barriers to receiving that sort of care? Um, and so, uh, basically, um, what we want is, you will not need to have supplemental private insurance or pay anything out of pocket for any of your um, like medically necessary care 
Um, it includes uh, gender affirming care, uh, you know, and I think that um, at some level, right, it it will come down to like, you know, a discussion between uh, your doctor, right? If a doctor can deem it as medical care rather than something that's like cosmetic. And I know that some of these right. things can be ambiguous, right? Like if, for instance, you're uh, in an accident, right? I think cosmetic care can be covered in cases like that. Um, but if it's considered completely elective, um, then, then maybe not. Uh, but, um, you know, a lot of these things are like, I would say that the, the legislation itself that as it's written in the initiative, right. Basically makes it clear that medically necessary care is covered. Um, the details of that, you know, some of this, I think will be clarified during the implementation phase, because part of what that includes is, um, you know, the creation, uh, of the, of the board that will kind of create and manage the plan. Uh, they create committees that negotiate things like prices and coverage with providers. Um, it has community representation, right? So there is a whole process in which it says, you know, here is the sort of state departments and positions that will be created to figure out the details of this. Um, but what we try to make clear in the initiative as written is that like, this is not intended to be something that's like, oh, well, we cover things that you can't afford, or um, this is to cover people who don't have care somewhere else right now. It really is like, this is where you get your care. And if it's care that you need, then this is where it gets paid, uh, paid from. Um, and so, uh, you know, there should not, you know, something like supplemental private care uh, should be considered completely optional and not necessary um, for most people. You have to forgive me. My internet connection went out a little bit. I just want to clarify. So it does cover hearing? Covers hearing. Eyeglasses? Eyeglasses. <laughs> Dent, like uh, dentistry, that kind of thing? Covers Does dentistry. That as well? Okay. And the mental only... health care? And mental health, yeah. Mental health care. It covers prescription drugs. The only, um, the only co-payment that's included in the plan is a maximum co-payment of $250 a year on prescription drugs. But there's some interesting caveats on that, which is that uh, generics are covered and uh, non-generics are also covered if there is not a generic. So really that co-payment oh. is to encourage the usage and development of generics um, while you know putting that co-payment on choosing to use a name brand when there is a generic available. So to discourage physicians from prescribing based on kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies. Exactly. Okay. And so there's no, uh, there are there no co-payments for dental hearing and anything like that. The only co-payments are for drugs. Correct. Okay. With $250 maximum out of pocket annually. Yep. Perfect. Um, so given how precarious our healthcare system is, folks are understandably pretty trepidatious when we talk about changes to the healthcare system. Um, you know, the fear of losing what little we have. Um, so I'd like to eliminate some of those fears by going into a little bit more of like the nitty gritty um, things people are worried about. And we'll probably miss some things that you hear all the time. So please chime in. Let's try to debunk some of these if we can. Um, so the pay for us, so let's talk about that. First of all, like mm -hmm. how much do we have to pay for this amazing care? Yeah. So, you know, it depends on uh, how much money you have and where it comes from. Um, our goal is for it to be paid for 
in as progressive a way as we can. And that can be a challenge in Washington state with our tax code. Um, and there's lots of sort of uh, myths about the Washington state tax code, among them being things like, you know, uh, capital gains is unconstitutional, income tax is unconstitutional. It turns out that the the thing, what what is unconstitutional is effectively graduated taxes, right? So to to create a tax in which people who make a certain amount of money pay more than others, right, at, at a different rate. And so effectively what that means is you can have whatever kind of tax you want, but it must be a flat tax. Um, and so what we had to do was combine several taxes together that sort of affect different income levels of people so that together it creates a progressive tax structure. Um, and so, uh, so Can, that's, do you go ahead? I just want to clarify. So you're saying under, when you say unconstitutional, I presume you mean our Washington state constitution. Correct. Okay. So, that's what, that was my same so question. Under our Washington state constitution, our federal tax structure is unconstitutional. That is correct, but I believe the Washington State Constitution can only um, it can only make that yeah. for state taxes. But correct. Certainly. Okay, just wanted to clarify <laughs> for anybody listening. Like, wait, what? Yeah, no. I mean, oh, Washington yeah. State is considered by how you some ways, you know, depending on how you measure, to have the most regressive tax code in the country. So this mm -hmm. kind of thing is a big challenge, and it's it's something that I think definitely needs to change. But one way that we kind of frame this bill occasionally is to say that when people ask us, how are you going to pay for it? Our answer is we're going to make the tax code more progressive. Um, okay. And so the way that we pay for this uh, with the state taxes are, um, most of it falls on employers. So there is a 10 and a half percent employer tax. And um, and so they may deduct up to 2% of that from employee payroll. So when you think about an individual tax that like you or I might be paying, it could be a 2% payroll tax. Um, some employers may choose to actually cover that as an employee, uh, an employment benefit, right? So it's a little bit confusing, but that 10 and a half percent is what the employer owes. They can lower that to 8% on them if they take 2% of it from employee payroll. Uh, but some employers like to think of their healthcare plans as like an employee benefit, right? So mm -hmm. we kind of give them that way of you can cover this as an employee benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's 10% on each person's income that they're paying per employee, your salary, they're paying 10% of whatever mm -hmm. they decide your salary is. Okay. And then um, uh, that same 2% applies to sole proprietors. So they would uh, pay up to 2%. And then um, the last one is an eight and a half percent capital gains tax. Um, and so with all of these taxes, we exempt the first 15,000 uh, because that's the maximum that you can exempt uh, and still qualify as like a uniform tax and remain within the Washington state constitution. So some people may have heard that like the capital gains tax that was passed a year or two ago is actually under some amount of legal challenge. And it's because they exempted up to the first $250,000, which we would love to do as well, uh, but we don't want to put this in legal, uh, you know, in a legally precarious situation, which is why we exempt only 15,000, which is well-established as, um, you know, there's legal precedent that that does not violate our state's uh, tax code. Um, um, 
Other things that are exempt, right, on the capital gains, we exempt things like home sales and retirement accounts. Um, and so uh, what our analysis finds is that 90% of Washington state actually makes less than 10,000 a year in capital gains. And that's, um, you know, then there's the additional exemptions on home sales and retirement accounts. So really the capital gains tax is designed to uh, to really only hit some of the top income and wealth, uh, you know, most wealthy and high earners in Washington state. Um, and then the other thing to remember is that all of this comes in place of what, you know, you're currently paying, which is like premiums, deductibles, co-pays, really high, you know, out of pocket, um, costs. Um, we pay twice as much per capita for our healthcare than most other countries with universal healthcare kind of peer countries, industrialized nations. Um, so we're paying twice as much and yet, uh, we don't get universal healthcare. We don't get everything covered. We don't have every one covered. So for all of that money, we are actually getting very substandard coverage. Um, mm -hmm. So that's why we're able to actually expand coverage while at the same time bring down the cost. And so the total cost of healthcare spending is estimated to actually drop um, by five to 13 billion a year. Um, in Washington state alone. In Washington state alone. It would be much, much higher if we were to pass Medicare for all federally. Yeah. Um, but for Washington state, between five to $13 billion less expensive than the current healthcare system. Um, and, uh, and what we find also is that in terms of kind of how that's distributed, it's 95% of Washingtonians will be paying less. Um, okay. and that, the, the 5% who are paying more really are kind of a top 5%. So just to clarify one more time, your employer pays 10 and a half percent. Theoretically, they can pay and then you pay 2% of that. But if you're, you said a sole proprietor, so does that include independent contractors? You drive for Uber, you work for yourself, you just pay 2%, is that correct? Correct. Okay. And if you're a small business owner and you employ one person, regardless of how many people you employ, you're paying that 10% for that one person. Is that right? Um. So that I'm less sure about. I know that what we have is... um we have some small business exemptions. I don't okay. know the specifics on them as much. And I think that might actually be something that also would be worked out by the healthcare trust, um, okay. exactly how those exemptions work. But the plan is intended to have small business exemptions that uh, make it easier if there's any businesses that fall into some sort of kind of middle zone where that becomes very difficult for them to pay. Um, we still want them participating in the system. So we will try to find exemptions um, and other ways to make it a little bit easier uh, if you're in that small to medium-sized business. Okay. Um, some other questions that we I hear from people. Uh, number one, or not number one, but how does how would a single-payer system in the state of Washington interact with already existing federal systems like Medicare and Medicaid? Like, for example, mm -hmm. um, people can still be working and they hit Medicare qualifying age and they're required to take Medicare and they no longer qualify for their employer-sponsored healthcare, even if they're still working. So would that person have to then pay their 2% and also have Medicare? How does that work? And then at the other end of the age range, usually Medicaid, how does that work um, for those people? Yeah. So, um, you know, this 
Yeah. So basically, um, the, the answer to that question involves whole Washington's transition plan, which which is included in the initiative. Um, so, you know, if you if you really want to all the details, you can read it. But um, but basically, um, when it comes to Medicaid, uh, one thing that I think people ought to know about it is that Medicaid is already a state federal partnership. Right. So Apple Health is a state program. But it receives federal money through uh, through um, through Medicaid, and so one way that we're actually going to bring federal money into this is the way Medicaid works is the more state money that's invested into that system, the more federal money you get, and so by increasing the state money that we're spending, we can get more federal money through uh, Medicaid. Medicare is another source of federal money towards healthcare. Um, and so that's another thing that would be incredibly beneficial is if we could take all of that federal money that goes into Medicare and apply it to the Washington Health Trust, which is a plan that covers everyone, everything, including things not currently covered by Medicare, right? So traditional Medicare does not cover dental, vision, hearing, um, and many other things that uh, people need. And so this has actually been one of the ways in which Medicare was privatized. Um, so senior citizens who are on Medicare and they need things like hearing aids um, would, you know, perhaps get a Medicare Advantage plan to get those things covered. And Medicare Advantage is effectively just a marketplace for private health insurance. Right. And so um, and so uh, one, you know, that's one reason why it's really important that the Washington Health Trust covers all of those things without requiring you to go get a supplemental private plan. So we want the public plan to cover all of those things. And so um, the way that this works is on day one, um, uh, everyone is eligible to enroll in the Washington Health Trust. So if you're somebody who is on Medicare, but you would rather be on the Washington Health Trust, then it would be your choice to enroll in it. But we can't automatically enroll somebody on Medicare. We can't just put them into the Washington Health Trust because it's a federal program, right? We can't just take the money that goes into that program and apply it towards our plan. So we can't just automatically enroll people in Medicare because it's a federal program. And so what we need is to apply for a Medicare waiver. Um, and if we receive the Medicare waiver, then we can take the federal money that uh, that goes into Medicare, apply it towards the Washington Health Trust. We can move all of those people in Medicare into the Washington Health Trust. And the way we get that federal waiver is to actually demonstrate that the coverage of our plan meets and exceeds the coverage of Medicare, right? So we have to sort of prove that our plan is a is a uh, sufficient replacement for Medicare, and then okay. we can put those people into it and apply that money to it. And um, you know the the waiver process is uh, you apply for the waiver from the federal government, um, and it's uh, you know it's not clear um, how long it would take for us to get that or how friendly you know it depends on how friendly the administration is to the idea. Um, but what's what's very important is that um, one, uh, if we don't get that waiver right, then that's a lot of people we don't have to cover because they'll be covered by Medicare, right? So it doesn't like sync the plan uh, because it's a, in that sense, right? It's sort of a self-correcting problem. Um, the other thing is that uh, we don't need the waiver to start 
creating the Washington Health Trust and giving people care, right? So basically what we do is we say, create the Washington Health Trust, um, begin enrolling people, begin giving people health care, and then we task the um, the board to seek all of the waivers that it can get, uh, expand coverage as much as it can possibly expand it, right? To take on any legal challenges that might come to it, right? So really we create the sort of institution that is going to move this forward and and become the healthcare system that we deserve. Perfect. And so for those people that are in that situation, retirement age, but still working, and the waiver hasn't come through yet, I, theoretically, they'll just pay their 2% still and qualify for Medicare, but they won't have to purchase supplemental Part D, anything like that, no Medicare Advantage, no nothing. Just still their so, 2% until we get the waiver. That's, that is almost true. It's actually a, a slightly ironic, but the way that they would enroll into it is the Washington Health Trust would actually be a plan that they could get through Medicare Advantage. So (laughs) even though it's publicly funded, even though it covers everything, and actually there's not even um, any kind of premium or anything with it, right? So they could just choose to enroll in it. If they are working age, then then they would have the 2%, right? But if they're retired, then they wouldn't even need to pay a premium. Mm -hmm. Um, But until we get the waiver, we offer it as a Medicare Advantage plan so they can choose to enroll into it once we get the waiver, then it just becomes their Medicare plan, basically. Okay. And another uh, question that I anticipate you get often, but I am a senator in my union. Unions pride ourselves. We've bargained for really great healthcare. And I understand that then you bargain for other things. This frees you up to bargain for, you know, sick time and wages and all those important things. But what do you... What do you say to those union workers who are not convinced they fought so much and uh, long and hard for their health care? Uh-huh. Well, you know, um, I will say that uh, that is something that I've heard for many years. And this is the first year where I've started to get calls from unions themselves saying, hey, we're very interested in your plan because we were just talking to, you know, the union in Texas and they just lo- all lost their health care. Right. And so they, what yes. they're actually seeking is a more permanent solution to this problem. Um, the employers other thing will, is, yeah, employers will take your health care when you go on strike. As they a will way to break the strike. Yeah, and and that's um, you know I have a flyer that I made that uh, the headline of it is universal health care is pro labor because I always like to take this back to the worker right, which is to say that it frees the worker to pursue a different job if they're in an abusive relationship with their boss, right? It allows them to seek an education if they need to change fields or something like that. It enables them to go on strike, right? It enables them to take a vacation or retire. Basically, I think of universal healthcare as incredibly pro-freedom, and these are ways in which it frees the worker to make the decisions that are best for the worker. And I think that any union that is credibly claiming to represent the best interests of workers needs to recognize this about universal health care and say this needs to be seen as bigger than our union and a health care plan that maybe we negotiated uh, and it needs to be something that becomes a guarantee for all workers the way that we've done for say weekends right or the the working working week the 40-hour work week um the way we've done for things like um you know fmla uh, disability, 
um, you know, different things like that. Healthcare needs to be one of those ones where we are not negotiating about this. Um, it's negotiated. We have it. Um, and, uh, and so, um, I think that that's, you know, a viewpoint that, um, is increasingly being understood. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I think that, um, I think that the other thing is just that, uh, we need to recognize, I think everyone needs to recognize that this is a change that must happen. And, uh, and so the question is, are you going to be part of the discussion or not, you know? Um, and so I, I, I hear these concerns, right. And I say to, to those who have them, like, please, uh, show up, please let us know the, these concerns. Um, I think that a lot of this might come down to just needing to be heard and included, you know, but I think that the reality that we're really talking about is we're all going to have much better healthcare and we're going to have more money in our pocket at the end of the year. And that is something that I think we all ought to be able to get behind, but if it, it it's really on us to make that case, right? So, um, you know, I will show up to any union meeting. I will show up to a, a break room. Uh, you know, I will present, I will introduce the resolution, whatever it takes. Uh, but if you will have this conversation with me, um, all I can do is kind of present the, uh, you know, the best face of the healthcare justice movement that I can, which is to say that I think it is incredibly pro-worker. I agree. And to any union listeners uh, clinging to your employer-sponsored healthcare uh, gives them a bargaining chip. Every time you sit down at the bargaining table, that's something they can take away from you. And eliminating that from the discussion really frees you up, as you said, not just in bargaining, but also uh, to pursue other passions, which is super important. It's about freedom. <laughs> All right. And then, sorry, Carissa, do you want to? Oh, well, do we want to move on to discussing the process, the various? I have a couple more there, questions more? Go ahead. about yeah. logistics, if that's okay. Um, so quick one, hopefully, is uh, if you're out of network, you're traveling, is it you're still able to get care wherever? Because technically it's just your health insurance company is here in the state and whatever hospital you're at can just bill them or are you going to be denied care if you're traveling? So the way that that works basically is it's like any other insurance plan, which is to say that um, they can accept it out of state. And, uh, you know, we believe that um, there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to get just as good out of state coverage as any health insurance company that's based in one place that gets uh, hospitals in another place to take their insurance. And one of the things that really gives single payer healthcare some real, you know, market power is that, you know, anyone who shops at Costco understands the concept of, um, you know, uh, economy buying, you know, economy sized, right. Buying in bulk. Um, and so by covering all seven and a half million people in Washington state, right. We have, um, an incredible amount of, of kind of bulk negotiation power. Um, and so when it comes to negotiating with like hospitals and hospital conglomerates and stuff like that, we're going to be basically able to, to say, you know, you're going to be able to accept billing from the state of Washington for an incredible number of patients. Right. And that's very appealing to people who, uh, accept insurance. So, uh, we, we think that, um, 
you know, you would be able to get very good out of state um, coverage while you're traveling. Um, and, you know, uh, anything, anything that you can't get covered, you know, I, I think there will be solutions, right? I mean, I think that it might be a little bit different than, you know, uh, than the way it works currently. We are talking about a pretty big, um, you know, it's, it's a big change, right? So we don't know all of, all of the nuances of how things might be different, but, um, but, you know, uh, it might become common to purchase a little bit of travel insurance or something like that. Right. I don't know. And you touched on this, uh, just now, but I know a big concern for hospitals is a payer mix and a big concern for physicians is a lot of times they're not, or they're concerned they won't be reimbursed because the hospital skims so much off the top that the hospital will not pay them as much. Um, and that impacts emergency room care that impacts, um, primary care doctors and primary care doctor, um, accessibility in rural areas. So what is the reimbursement rate? Is that going to be the Medicaid rate or Medicare rates, or will it be enough? Is there any stipulation so, on how much hospitals can take versus paying their nurses and doctors? Yeah, I think this is probably going to be one of the, one of the most important challenges for this proposal to, um, to succeed at, but you know, the, the taxes that we specify in the initiative are mandatory. So we raise the money and we, we believe it to be enough money to provide coverage to everyone in Washington state. The reimbursement rates are negotiated. They're negotiated by the, the trust, the Washington health trust, um, and the board that oversees it, um, and, uh, providers who will be represented on a provider committee, right? So the, the, the board is basically required to create a committee that represents providers and then negotiate the reimbursement rates with them. The analyses that we've run, right. In which we, uh, project certain amounts of savings, right. And stuff like that. Um, it, it makes certain assumption, certain assumptions, right? So one assumption that it makes is the reimbursement rate. And it suggests a reimbursement rate of 100. And, and I, I'm really sorry if I get this wrong. So I'm going to just be a little bit cagey, but it's either 112% or 120%. Um, but it, it is higher than the current Medicare reimbursement rate. And Medicare is widely accepted insurance that uh, reimburses at about the rate of Primera Blue Cross, right? So it is it is considered a pretty good reimbursement rate, and we suggest a reimbursement rate that is higher than that, um, you know, significantly higher than that, uh, and still find you know uh, huge net savings, right? So there's there's slack in it, right? Um, some amount of the money that we raise is actually intended to develop a surplus. So that, for instance, if you have a year where there's an economic recession and the uh, um, the taxes don't bring in as much revenue, they can draw from the surplus that's been developed on on years where there's more economic growth, uh, so that the trust remains solvent, right? Um, okay. So the point is, there's there is slack in the system, and you know some of that slack can go towards higher reimbursement rates or or whatever, right? Um, but uh, but those are things that ultimately will be negotiated by the the board and providers and other um, you know community representatives. Okay, so providers, nurses, doctors, 
likely won't see a pay cut because their reimbursement rate will be similar to Blue Cross and or Medicare, which they already generally accept. And another thing to consider is um, part of hospitals payer mix, there's a large portion of patients who are uninsured who still get care under EMTALA laws. Um, so that will theoretically fund them fully, whereas they're not now. So for anybody. Another thing that, um, you know, I think uh, needs to be in the consideration is that so much money goes towards the administration of so many different healthcare plans. And so uh, there's, you know, you might think, well, I'm making less money, but if you're spending less money on an admin department that has to process a million different insurance plans, then ultimately, right, you, the doctor might be you know, are you the hospital, um, can end up, it ends up closer than you might think it is, right? Because there's savings in addition to, uh, changes in reimbursement rates. You don't have a giant billing department. It's a lot more streamlined. Exactly. All right. That's all my questions. Sorry for peppering you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I guess we can start with the state legislature, like, where are we at in in that process? What's holding it up? Who's holding it up? What allies do we have? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, Washington, whole Washington first init- um, introduced legislation probably in 2018 or 2019 in the form of Senate Bill 5222. The uh, sponsor of that was Bob Hasegawa. Senator Bob Hasegawa, who has been the primary sponsor of every version since. Uh, So I guess the only other version since was Senate Bill 5204, um, which is set to expire at the beginning of the next session. But I'm happy to announce that um, we are on track to reintroduce that into the next legislative session. So there'll be a new bill number. you know, and every time we reintroduce the initiative or the bill, there's always opportunity to improve it. So it'll still be the Washington Health Trust, but there could be some differences. But um, Senator Hasegawa has given us his confirmation that he's willing to be the primary sponsor again. And uh, we believe that we can introduce it to more co-sponsors than we've ever introduced it before, because some of our endorsers who had been supporting us in the House have won their elections to the Senate. So Javier Valdez is one of them. Um, and uh, I'm, I don't want to mess up any names right now. So um, that is just to say that we've had a lot of supporters in the House and some of them have moved up to the Senate. And, and in the last election, we didn't lose any supporters. Uh, none of our supporters lost a re-election to their seat. So we've only gained ground. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a few of our supporters in the House retire, but they were actually... Um, more or less uh, there, those vacancies will say were, were filled by whole Washington endorsers. So we've got some new uh, new people coming in who have endorsed us. And if you want to see the full list, you can go to the website, wholewashington.org slash endorsements. But the current situation is that we have, uh, I want to say seven or eight um, uh, members of the Senate who have co-sponsored one of our bills before. And in the House, um, we have actually never been able to introduce legislation into the House. Uh, We have about 14 members of the House who endorse our uh, initiative individually. Um, But but yes, you are correct in perceiving that there has been um, challenges 
getting this very far in the legislature and we are going to see them in the next session. Um, I can't make any guarantees on how things will go, but I will say that I feel, um, I feel confident that we will be able to introduce this into the house this year, which is a first for us. So it is actually, it might sound like a small thing, but it's actually a huge step for us. Um, one of the things that has changed that will help in this regard is that the chair of the house healthcare committee, uh, was formerly Eileen Cody, who was, uh, very on the record as, um, not being a fan of our group or our proposal. And, um, uh, you know, the past is, um, includes a lot of conversations and stuff that I was not present for, but I will just say that we, we have previously believed that we were on track to introduce this into the house and, and believe that, you know, basically the, um, basically that they were encouraged not to do so. Um, and, uh, and we believe that with, um, Marcus for Kelly as the new chair of the house healthcare committee, that there is just a lot of new openness and opportunity to having this introduced. Um, and, you know, we've had, uh, conversations with a number of our supporters in the house and, uh, their support is there. It's real. We are looking for our primary sponsor. So we're still kind of looking for that one representative who wants this to really be the issue that they push forward. Um, and so we are going to continue to uh, call and set up meetings. But I will just say that uh, to anyone who might want to set up this meeting with their representative, uh, or if you're a representative yourself listening to this, um, you know, whole Washington is prepared to provide 100% of the support needed in order to make this a successful push in the house. Um, you know, we've done this before. Uh, so, you know, we're not new to this. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the policy itself is, is an absolute gold standard state single payer policy. It's been vetted, uh, multiple times. I'm not saying there's no room to improve it. Um, but, you know, uh, even if we just introduce something very, very similar to what we've introduced in the past, it's very high quality legislation. Um, and then, um, in terms of like, you know, our public outreach, uh, gathering tens of thousands of signatures multiple times, uh, has a way of getting you in touch with many, many universal healthcare supporters. So we have the reach to make our appreciation for universal healthcare champions known, um, and to make sure that, you know, people who are really showing up for this issue uh, are getting the credit they deserve for taking on um, one of the most powerful lobbies in Washington state and the United States. Um, and so, you know, whatever we can do, uh, we are willing to do to support our, um, our supporters in the legislature. And uh, our hope is to get it introduced into both chambers, push for as many hearings as we can, who knows, maybe a floor vote, um, and and then just go from there, you know? And that helps us figure out who is ready to show up for this and who isn't. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, um, so that's kind of the the challenge in the, in the House. Um, in the Senate, where we have been introduced multiple times before, uh, the big bottleneck has always been 
uh, getting a hearing in the healthcare committee. Um, and, you know, it's, we've requested it multiple times and it comes down to uh, the leadership of that committee, I think, to, to give us that hearing. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll be reaching out to the members of the healthcare committee and asking for a hearing again this session. And so the, the one of the leaders of the healthcare committee in the Senate is Annette Cleveland, correct? Yeah. So Annette Cleveland has been the chair of that committee and will uh, remain the chair of that committee in the next session. Because, yeah, she's our representative down here in Vancouver for the 49th. She's our state, our state senator for the 49th legislative district. So I think most of our listeners are probably in the 49th. Right. So I, I guess I'm on the perfect podcast. And, um, you know, uh, I think that, um, I think that, you know, our legislators need that pressure to come from us, their constituents. We are the ones who represent mm-hmm. them. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you're excited about whole Washington, uh, writing in to your representatives and letting them know that this is a very important issue to you and that you believe that it deserves the, them to be co-sponsors of it and that it deserves uh, public hearings and a vote. Um, that is, uh, it's powerful for them to hear that from their constituents. And, um, you know, when it comes to like resolutions that we can pass, we just passed one in the Seattle city council. Um, these are the sorts of things that can build pressure as well. And, uh, it's actually sort of a funny story. Um, we passed a resolution in Annette Cleveland's district and, um, I wasn't there. I don't remember what the final vote was, but but what I heard was that um, Annette Cleveland did vote against it, uh, but her husband did not. <laughs> so, um, so you know, uh, I don't know who uh, you know who she would find more convincing, but um, but yes, we are always happy to build pressure um, wherever we can find supporters. And then so the the ballot initiative process, that seems like, at least to me, that seems like the most promising um, because it puts the issue directly to the voters. And um, there's been a lot of support garnered in uh, by that means. So what what's the process or where are we at there? I think the deadline's coming up, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, the ballot initiative, we try to think of the ballot initiative in the legislature as complementary strategies, right? So mm-hmm. when we're collecting signatures out there, voters find it very, very reassuring to hear like, oh, my representative has already endorsed this. It's been looked at by, you know, the state agencies and stuff like that. And at the same time, when we're talking to our legislators, they find it very motivating when we say, we have 10,000 signatures from constituents in your district, right? So right. these these strategies really work off of each other mutually and build support publicly and legislatively for universal single-payer health care. Um, the other thing that I say about the initiative process, right, because we, we all can be so drawn in by federal politics and we hear about how all of this uh, stuff dies, right? And mm-hmm. so when we're talking about the ballot initiative, right, no vetoes, no filibusters, no parliamentarians, right? It's like, (laughs) we put it on the ballot, we vote on it, and it becomes the law, and it does what it says it does. Um, And so, uh, you know, in that sense, you know, we really think that, like, the expansion of, like, small-D grassroots democracy is very important to 
um, you know, winning universal health care. And that's why it's it's the strategy we're most known for is our ballot initiatives. Um, and, uh, you know, we we have run the initiative before and we are in the, the final days of our uh, current campaign for I-1471. Um, and so uh, signatures are due to the Secretary of State's office in Olympia uh, by the 30th. And our plan is to um, collect as many of the sheets as we can and count them and uh, take them down to Olympia. But the unfortunate reality is that, um, you know, the Secretary of State will not accept our signatures unless they believe that we have, um, you know, at least enough signatures that there's a chance that we have enough to make the ballot. And the reality that we're looking at is that we've got maybe about one fifth of the signatures we need. So we are not going to be making the 2023 ballot. Um, and, you know, that is uh, not to say that the campaign has not um, grown uh, grown our numbers incredibly, and these signatures remain incredibly valuable. Um, you know, over the course of the campaign, we've nearly doubled the size of our mailing list, the size of our Twitter following. We've gotten media coverage that we've never gotten before. Um, so the initiative, you know, running the initiative, even when not successful, grows the movement for healthcare justice. Um, and it sets us up uh, a lot better for a future initiative campaign. And uh, we don't have any firm promises on a future initiative campaign other than that um, we, of course, will be looking into when it makes sense to run it again. And I'll just say uh, I'm just the campaign director, right? So I can't speak for the entire organization or anything like that. Um, but I think there is wide recognition that it would be a huge missed opportunity to not at least try to make the 2024 ballot um, because, you know, ultimately the hope of this succeeding is going to rely on high voter turnout, right? So we need to be on, uh, you know, we can't miss the opportunity to be on a major even year ballot like 2024. Um, so, you know, every time we don't make it, um, the, the story remains the same, which is that we still need universal health care. And so we continue to pursue all of the paths that we see ahead of us, right? And some people believe the legislature is hopeless, right? Some people believe initiatives are a waste of time because they're so expensive, right? Some people believe that this is going to take 10 years. Some people think that, um, you know, we can get it done sooner. And, uh, and so for us, it is, um, you know, we, we pursue where we see the most opportunity, which is the ballot initiative uh, for the most part, but also, um, you know, the Universal Healthcare Commission and the legislature. Uh, and we basically see ourselves as representing, um, representing uh, the, the universal healthcare movement and, and voicing, articulating that demand for a truly universal healthcare system, whether that's by, you know, collecting those signatures in the streets or uh, calling our legislators. I would encourage anybody listening um, to call Annette Cleveland's office because I know calling is more effective, uh, research shows. So give her a call. We've called her a few times. We'll put her number in the show notes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I will just add one thing, you know, um, we have not been given a reason 
why we haven't been given a hearing, you know, and, and I, I don't know um, if, if Annette Cleveland or anyone else has given a reason why they don't support the Washington health trust. Right. And so, um, you know, we are in, a, in I know a reason, yeah. <laughs> but we are in a place right now, you know, if, if anyone has legitimate criticism of the plan, uh, we are in a moment right now where we can, uh, we can address it. Right. So, um, you know, uh, we need to know the reason why we couldn't, uh, get support on our previous plans. Uh, but, if there's a problem with the bill, right, we haven't introduced it yet in either house. Uh, we won't have to file a future initiative uh, until March. Um, so there is time right now to make your voice heard, to make a contribution to um, to the Washington Health Trust in the form of uh, legislative expertise or whatever it is that you bring. Um, and so... I really, you know, whoever's out there in the sort of community who says, I want to support this, but I I would like to support, you know, I support the idea, but um, let those concerns be heard. Let's uh, let's fix them if there's a way to fix them. And uh, and, you know, I think that for me, the big thing that uh, can be really frustrating, right, is is when concern uh is used to paralyze action, right? And it's concerns are real. Of course we have concerns, right? Um, but we have to find a way to move forward. So yes, let's uh, let's hear these concerns, but let us never use them as a reason why we can't have universal health care. We say, okay, let us figure it out. How do we overcome this barrier? Um, and And I think that there are many barriers to universal health care, um, but we are in the business of overcoming them. All right, guys, just a little afterward, once again, um, like we usually do, we have a couple of action items for you. We have one important action item. You got to do it. Super easy. Then we got a couple action items after that. So I just want to tell you a little bit about that. So we are trying to kickstart the effort to get the Vancouver City Council to pass a resolution in support of single-payer health care. Now, this would be a resolution that is in support of uh, whole Washington, um, that is in in support of the state and house bills, sorry, the Senate, state Senate and house bills, um, as well as the federal effort. Um, and then also it would put in writing a, uh, urging of, uh, Congresswoman Marie Glusenkamp Perez to support that federal effort for Medicare for all. Um, so why is this important? Well, the Seattle city council just, passed a similar resolution and as much support as we can get from uh of, you know elected bodies from everyday people everyone um is just another building block to pushing support for single payer healthcare um and and as noted in our story at the beginning Annette Cleveland would be 
we believe that Annette Cleveland would be very pressured by the Vancouver City Council, uh, you know, uh, brought together by the people of Vancouver uh, if we were to pass a resolution like this. She'd be like, oh, shit, everybody supports this, and I'm claiming to represent them. What do I do? And maybe she would actually, uh, you know, have a fire under her ass despite despite her corruption. So, yeah, anyways, um, that's the effort we're trying to put together here. We have a change.org petition for you um, to sign. So please sign that. Of course, that's going to be in the show notes. Um, for extra credit, extra credit, email your city council members. Um, tell them why you care, why you support it, you know, whatever. Even if it's just a brief a brief statement, uh, you know, a personal email goes a long way. But we will be gathering those, those uh, petition signatures as well. Um, and then thirdly, you can call Annette Cleveland herself. Uh, give her a call. Tell her what a cold-hearted monster she is for standing in the way of single-payer health care and for being complicit in the, the deaths and horror stories all across the state. Um, and, you know, understandable if you don't want to go that hard. You can just give her a call and just say, Hello, I support a hearing for single-payer health care in the state Senate. Thank you. Goodbye. So it could just be as easy as that. You don't have to, like, rip her a new one or anything. (laughs) Anyways, okay, that's enough for me. Oh, also, uh, we have a special artist showcase, um, so stay tuned for that song that we're going to be playing. Um, This is actually extra special. It is music from our sound engineer, LT Page. Um, So please give it a listen. Um, Thanks, everyone. We'll, uh, We'll see you next time. God.